Thank you for coming to the 11th hour lecture series. I can already tell this is going to be a good bunch. I feel the energy. The Monday morning we got some coffee at Capanna slash May's energy. Um, I'm going to just run through what we're going to have on, on the docket for this week so you know what's coming up. And then I'll introduce Robert and let him give you um, the benefit of his wisdom. So Tuesday, tomorrow, in this room at 11 o'clock, we're going to have uh, a talk by Susan Taylor Chihak, Going Graphic, What the Storytelling Secrets of Comet Can Tell Us About Narrative Technique. In this 11th hour, Susan Taylor Chiak will use PowerPoint to take a graphic look at comic book storytelling conventions and how they can be applied to your own written narratives. For examples and discussions, she will explore the magic of words, summoning pictures, uh, and, inspire, and picturing inspiring words. So, um, come for that. And then Wednesday, Mary Allen, uh, she teaches for us. She's not teaching this session, but she teaches pretty often for us and lives in town. So we were lucky enough to get her to come do a talk for us. Uh, and this one, for all of you who have busy day jobs, having a hard time finding time to write, it's called Working with Time, the Key to Writing. One of the biggest challenges and imperatives of, fight, of writing is finding time, making time to sit down and do it. Uh, and so she's going to talk about ways to find writing time. And then Thursday, we have um, a guest coming in from the University of Chicago, Stephanie Anderson. Uh, she's a poet who has a book forthcoming, and she's finishing up a PhD at the University of Chicago. Um, Stephanie Anderson will speak about small press publishing from both a personal and historical perspective, briefly landing on topics such as the mythic origins of small books, modernisms, little magazines, and the mimeographed role in countercultural production. She's gonna, it'll be half craft talk, half sort of uh, brief history. And if I know a lot of you are fiction writers here to hear about the haiku, this talk is um, it explores the small press, which, as you know, becomes more and more an option for fiction writers, with people um, actually winning big prizes off of small presses and it becoming a really great way to publish. So that's what we've got on deck. Today, Robert Siegel is going to run us through haiku for prose writers, exploring the power of the image. Robert will be going to Taiwan on a Fulbright, and he's going to be living in the exact same town where I went to high school in Taiwan. So uh, I'm really excited about that. He also has a background in Japanese, and so he's not just talking, you know, uh, a layman's knowledge of the haiku. He, he knows he knows his stuff. So I'll hand it over. Give a big hand for Robert. And thank you all for coming. Can you hear me okay? Great. Um, with this sort of, this kind of device, I feel like I'm on real professors of Iowa City or something. You know how they're always walking around in these supposedly totally unscripted scenes on TV, except they're wearing a mic. And, um, today's topic is haiku. Um, more specifically, haiku for prose writers. Often I know that prose writers, fiction writers, nonfiction writers don't really understand the relevance of poetry to what they're doing. But it's completely, entirely, vitally important. So I'd like to make that connection for people. However, um, um, to put a warning label on it, I'm not really here to give you my wisdom. Rather, I'm here to get yours. What we're going to do is talk a little bit. Um, uh, feel free to ask questions or make points as we talk. Um, we're going to read a little bit. That's why you should have a handout. It's got examples of haiku. And then on the other side, it has a couple of prose examples. And you can see sort of the way um, the haiku use of imagery moves over into fiction. Um, and then... You should have paper and pen because we're also going to write haiku. My own firm belief as a teacher of writing is that, um, well, uh, let me t uh, take a step back. My, my brother is a doctor. And um, when he was in meds medical school, they had this great saying. A little upsetting to hear it from your doctor. But um, they, they say, see one, do one, teach one. Right? And that's the way you're supposed to learn medicine. Um, you really hope that, you know, they see a lot of them before they do one. But um, 
But in writing, nobody gets hurt except a piece of paper and some ink. So you really can do, do see one, do one, teach one. And um, so we're going to write a lot of haiku at the end. And I'll, I'll give you a little instruction on how I like to do that, though you can adapt that. Um, okay, so let's start. As I see it, sort of the, the bottom line task for the prose writer is to make the world of the fiction real for the reader. That's true no matter what kind of, of prose you're, you're writing. Conventionally realistic, you know, surreal, uh, fantastic, fabulous. Doesn't matter. Whatever the conventions of your fictive world are, the fiction itself has to be real for, for the reader. The way I like to describe it to my undergraduates um, back in North Carolina is that the writer has to make the movie happen in the reader's head. If the movie, if you don't turn on the projector, and if the movie isn't happening in the reader's head, everything else doesn't matter. Great characters, fascinating plot, um, interesting world. We're not seeing it. It's not real to us. We're not persuaded. And a lot of what we do in writing classes and writing workshop is learning how to make the movie happen. It's highly technical. Um, it's a bunch of skills. Those skills really can be learned. Um, getting good at, at, at these skills is, is, is something you do on your own. But a, a, a writing teacher really can introduce them to you and make them clear. Um, so, how do you make the movie happen in the reader's head? Well, that's a long list uh, of, of skills involved. And ultimately, what a, a writing student does is learns how to do them all simultaneously. Because remember, you know, at now when I teach undergraduates, it's, it's fairly uh, rare to meet one who has grown up reading. Instead, they all relate back to movies. And which is, so I say remember, a movie is a collaborative project. There's a director, there are many actors, there are costumers, uh, set designers, um, a cinematographer, right? But the writer is doing all of those jobs to make the movie happen in the reader's head. All of those jobs. It's an extremely complex, uh, multifaceted um, enterprise. But one of the key skills involved in making the movie happen is the image. The image. And even though the image is vital to making good fiction good, it's vital to what you experience when you sit down and read. It's completely central to the books you love most. But often, it, it's so natural and intuitive and so essential that we don't see it operating as we read. All too often, because it creates that sense of the book really happening in your head, you don't stop and say, wow, incredible image, or that image, I see it now, it made me believe. That requires a certain stepping back, a certain perspective. But the nature of imagery is that it pulls you in and doesn't allow you to think rationally. Part of the power of the image is that it's, call it what you want, pre-rational, post-rational, sub-rational, meta-rational. It's outside of rational processes. It's physical, it's intuitive, it's perceptual, it's sensual. right? That's what makes it good. Um, so the weird thing is, even though as writing teachers we're supposed to be helping students make the movie, one of the key elements 
is incredibly difficult to talk about. How do you talk about imagery? It's very, very hard, especially when students aren't necessarily used to reading for imagery. Um, for that reason, all too often, and I'm guilty of this too, in workshops and classes, I tend to go to the easy stuff. We talk about plot, structure. I mean this easy in the sense of we have a pre-existing vocabulary which allows us to talk about it in familiar ways. Right? You go to a movie or you read a great book and, and somebody says, hey, I meant to read that. Uh, what's it about? That question, what's it about? Well, it draws naturally to story. Right? And of course, we all know that, that fiction is story, but um, what we forget is that imagery is story too because it's hard to see that link. Because it is hard to talk about imagery effectively, I like to jump over that sort of swamp, that problem, and just teach students how to write haiku. If you learn how to write haiku and how to read haiku, you will get good at imagery, and you will be able to move, transfer that skill into your fiction. Right? And it sensitizes you, but it also makes you aware of how imagery tells story. And that's what we're about today. So, before we, you know, I, I realize it's a preamble after a preamble, but it's all important. Before we begin, what is a haiku? And incidentally, stop with, with questions at any point. What is a haiku? Haiku is the butt of a million jokes, right? I, uh, people find out that I'm interested in haiku. I studied haiku at the, um, when I was uh, a student in Japan at the University of Tokyo, right? But they, people find out I'm interested in haiku and they hand me these joke books full of like, you know, like haiku you. And, and I enjoy them, they're funny. I can take a joke, but secretly I'm a little hurt. Right? Because haiku has a glorious tradition of great poets who, you know, laid it on the line with the, the passion um, and the seriousness and the risk that great writers have been investing in their work for centuries, right? It's centuries old. Um, now, in, Jap in the Japanese language, haiku is um, 17 syllables. It's syllabic, right? Because the 575 rhythm is natural to the Japanese language, almost like iambic pentameter is a natural rhythm to English, right? It is unrhymed because Japanese is very rich in vowels, kind of. Um, I don't know, it's often compared to Italian in that way, though I know that Italian do poetry does use rhyme. Japanese does not because it becomes extremely sing-song. It is too easy to rhyme in Japanese. Um, in the 19th century, Japanese poets started um, experimenting with Western conventions when the country was opened up to the West. You know, it had been closed for almost 300 years. Uh, during, and Incidentally, that 300-year period of isolation is when the haiku developed. Um, the results are disastrous. Those sort of 19th century rhyming poetry in Japanese, really, it's awful. Um, so the haiku is unrhymed. And as you can tell, it is extremely short. That means that a haiku is essentially an image, a single image, that is allowed to resonate out into the white space surrounding the poem. Or it is two images placed side by side and allowed to resonate in tension together so that each comments on the other in a way that is intuitive and strange. And um, you know, you can spend, weirdly, you can spend lots of time unpacking these poems. And yet once you do it, if you do it the right way, the mystery is increased. If you do it the wrong way, it feels dead on the page. Like, like a joke that's been over-explained. Nobody likes a joke explained, right? Um, and I have a wonderful book in English. The, uh, 
translator's name is last name is Kuleva. I'm trying to remember what the title is, but anyway, it's just there's a great tradition of commentary on haiku because they are so short. They invite endless amounts of, of speculation as to what is implied, what is hidden in the subtext, right? It's a game. People love it. But it's, a, it's also a form of participation. So uh, this book, guys, like something, something commentary. And it's just um, uh, common, commentaries on haiku by the great poet Basho. a 17th century haiku poet who's kind of the Shakespeare of haiku. Um, and just hundreds of years of people thinking about haiku. It's a wonderful book. Anyway. Um, the haiku became short through a, sort of an evolutionary process. It really comes from a longer form of poetry. And this is something that's peculiar to um, uh, Japanese literature. That is, Japanese literature has for centuries, really for over a thousand years, been interested in how things, how, how large forms can be broken down into smaller units, and how those units can then be recombined in, in networks or chains. So the haiku comes from something called the waka. Um, which is 57577. And the 77 is almost like um, if you know the Shakespearean sonnet, which ends in a couplet, right? The 77 was sort of like that couplet where the kind of conceptual or abstract point was connected to the image that came before, right? And then something happened. People realized that there was a little bit of a disjunction between the 575, which is about the image, and the 7-7, seven, seven, which is about the image's meaning. They wanted to create a space between those two things, which is super smart, I think. So what happened is they started um, playing a, a, a sort of game where a bunch of poets would, would get together and start putting waka in chains. So somebody would do the 5-7-5, the image. Uh, somebody would do the 7-7, seven, seven, which was called the cap. And that was sort of the idea. Then somebody else would do another 575 image. And it became this long chain. It could be 1,000 links. It could be 100 links. Uh, it could go all day. It could go for a week. Uh, there could be any number of people doing this. I think by, by Basho preferred, I think it was 39 um, links. This is called Lenga. Or more exactly, um, Haikai. No, Nanga. Haikai was kind of like um, hip hop. I kid you not. It was the hip hop of the seven, of 17th century Japan. <laughs> what I mean by this is that it was a, sort of an aesthetic approach to a whole bunch of different arts. Right? And it was. Um, Irreverent, it used a more uh, vernacular vocabulary. Um, it, 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 it liked spoof and parody, uh, satire. Um, it, it took the aristocratic tradi tradition of the waka and the nenga and it made it available to the common man who was now going to school, getting educated as the country became more developed and, and, and wealthier, um, and wanted to participate in the great Japanese cultural tradition. So that's haikai no denga, these long chains. And Basho, um, his poetic practice was really shaped by these chains, uh, by writing denga. What we know is haiku started to happen at that time, people realized, pe people would practice writing what was called the hokku, the first 575 of the chain. And then they realized it can kind of stand on its own. And they would just write lots of hokku. 
And then, in the 19th century, a guy named Shiki, a great um, um, haikai poet, said, you know what? We don't need the chain. Um, we, the hoku itself stands alone as a great art form. Uh, um, the essence, you know, the essence of poetry, just the single stunning image, like a, like a zap of lightning. Now, he had a little self-interest in this because Basho's art was communal. Shiki had TB, uh, TB of the spine, incredibly painful disease. He was like, he was a Keatsian figure. You know how Keats died? Uh, was he 30 yet? I can't quite remember, but you know, he, this incredible, he himself was a flash of lightning. So was Shiki. He died in his mid-30s. But because of the, the TB was in the spine, he couldn't walk. So he was basically stuck in his room alone. He couldn't participate in this communal activity. So in a way, he invented a tradition. It's a, incredible, right? He took the tradition and bent it to his own life's limits. A lot of his poetry is about being sick in a room and seeing the world outside his window. It's very beautiful. Um, go out, there are a couple of, of translations. Um, find his work if you can. Um, and that is where we get the modern haiku. He created that term. Okay, so let's read some of these together. And we'll see some of the, let's try to find, see, I, yeah, yes? I didn't get a handout. Is there one available? We need a handout down here. It's coming your way. Okay, thank you. Yes? What's the meaning of the word that you said? Well, it's from, it's got the same height. Um, and that height is, I think, um, is related to play, and um, and that and ku is a verse, and often um, it'll just be shortened to somebody instead of saying somebody wrote a haiku, you'll just say somebody wrote a ku. Um, yeah. What was the name of the? Oh, oh, just said, the, oh, the other guy, yeah. his name is she. Really an extraordinary, an extraordinary figure. And a beautiful poet. Whose work came out of, you know, tremendous physical suffering. And um, he really reminds you that no matter what is happening to you, uh, a vase of flowers on a table can be, you know, life-changing. So, very powerful. So, um, let's take a look at a few by Basho first. Felling a tree and seeing the cut end, tonight's moon. Let me do this first one. Felling a tree and seeing the cut end, tonight's moon. The way I read this, right? Um, maybe it's nighttime. Maybe it's hazy, right? Um, so you can't see the moon clearly. Cut down a tree. Uh, maybe, maybe creating a shelter. Maybe creating a fire. Um, and then you've got that. If you know how you, um, you cut cut a branch or you cut a tree and you've got that perfect round segment and the inside of the tree is shockingly white. Right? And that is the moon. Right? So the moon isn't up here, it's in the tree. And that is one way that, it, that image works. It works through, I'm going to make a list, as much for my own good as yours. One way image works is through analogy. And by that I mean physical analogy. The big, the big disc of the moon, the little circle of the cut tree. But it gains richness if you remember that the moon is a traditional Buddhist symbol of enlightenment. 
So the way I read this is, and you know, sometimes I gotta resist the, the sort of desire to read too allegorically, but enlightenment is everywhere, even when it's hidden, right? Can't see the moon, but it's still here. It's in the tree. Very lovely. Notice too, might as well get this up on the board, the use of implication, right? Because as a fiction writer, implication, I cannot spell at all. As a fiction writer, I'm always looking for scene. Scene is the lifeblood of fiction. So here we have a guy cutting a tree and noticing the moon inside of it. What kind of journey is he on, right? Why is he concerned about enlightenment? Where is he coming from? What is his burden? What is his emotional burden? Essentially, the poem implies a moment in a life. And if, if the image is the point on the line, it implies the, lot, the rest of the line in both directions, a past, a future. All right, now I'm going to let you do the name, next one. The crane's legs have gotten shorter in the spring rain. Where I live in North Carolina, it's on the coast, we really do have cranes. They are magnificent birds. You cannot believe. Um, exquisite, with these long, long legs. What's going on here? Somebody. What? It's flooding. The water's rising. So why not say that? Because the water is rising and the crane is just standing there, standing there, standing there in the water as the level rises. And it might be standing there for hours. So I like both these things. Let's put them together, right? Okay. The legs are not getting shorter. The water is rising, right? This is actually another key thing that image does, or uses, a technique that image uses, which is visual paradox. Again, when we use the word paradox, we often think about conceptual paradox, right? Um, I can't think of a single conceptual paradox. <laughs> Can anybody out there? I mean, like, I, I want to say something like, oh, army intelligence or something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you are walking and you meet a man at a fork in the road, and you ask him which way should you go to get to town, and he says left, but I'm a liar. Oh, yeah, that's great. Right, that is the classic Star Trek paradox. <laughs> Whenever they're sort of captured by a computer, Kirk uses some sort of conceptual paradox to make it, you know, blow up. Because it can't feel. I actually think there is a deep wisdom to Star Trek, beyond the corniness. Um, I remember my, my, my dear father always uh, considered um, William Shatner one of the great actors of all time. Which, which made me just love him all the more. But, um... Yes, but um, haiku does not use conceptual paradox so much as it uses visual paradox. When you look at it, like say a baby looks, if a baby were looking at this crane, it might actually think the legs are getting shorter because it doesn't notice that the water is rising. Now, that fits beautifully with this, un, this sort of emotional undertow, which is what you said, is that when a person does not stand out in the rain, uh, but a bird does, animals do, which I always find so weird. When I look at birds out my window, I'm like, you know, dummy, it's raining. And it takes a while to realize, oh, he doesn't mind. And of course, the crane is actually a water bird. It lives on marshes, so it really doesn't mind. It, you know, it fishes and... And that, you feel in a way, one of the things that an image does is you, 
It allows you to feel the thingness of the thing. It reveals its essence, its materiality. When you see a crane, when you see, when this haiku shows you a crane standing in the rain as the water rises, you feel its craneness more intensely. It's not human. It's different. It's a crane. That is what image tries to do in fiction, too. It shows you the thingness. Because remember, ultimately, we live in bodies. We live in a physical world surrounded by objects, weather, flora and fauna, fauna, the natural world. We know this world only through sensory experience. Whatever you think, you know, we've all grown up sort of with uh, Descartes, right? Um, I think, therefore I am. We put an incredible emphasis on intellection. But in reality, our lives are sensory. Um, what are the five senses again? No, really. That's, I'm not kidding around. My own feeling is, as writers, you should have those five words up on a piece of paper over your desk because they're all that really matter. At any moment, that's all that matters. Right? That's the world your characters inhabit. That is the world you inhabit. It is, those are the things that will make the fiction real to your readers. And that is what imagery gives us. Um, quick joke. I just heard. I'm ashamed to say it was on Prairie Home Companion. But I'm old enough to enjoy Prairie Home Companion. I used to listen to that and go, why does anybody listen to this? <laughs> For one, it's just so slow. But now I'm like, oh, that's so funny. And I say to my 14-year-old son, did you hear that? And he's like, oh. <laughs> um, Um, Descartes walks into a bar, sits on a stool. Bartender says, uh, Professor Descartes, what are you having? Uh, would you like something to drink? And Descartes says, I think not. <laughs> and immediately disappears. <laughs> I laughed and laughed. And my son looked just so disgusted. <laughs> Let's do another one. The next one. I'll, I, you guys do this one too. I'll just read it for you. The sea darkening. The wild duck's call is faintly white. And I looked up, I got, you know, I, wild duck, uh, Japanese wild duck on uh, the internet. I even got the call, which, I don't know, it sounded like a quack to me. Um, how could that be white? What's that? What's going on? What's that mean? Ah, uh, means a bad word. What does that do? What? It makes the darkness not as dark. Yes, it's like a flash, a presence in the darkness, that murk, which seems empty. The sea darkening, the wild duck's call is faintly white. So what kind of scene does this imply for you? Oh, interesting. You know, Japanese literature is full of, is fascinated with shades of melancholy and has many, Japanese aesthetics has many different words for um, different kinds of melancholy. But one of the key terms, I'm going to give it to you, is mono no aware. And aware is important because it's sadness. But it's, it's really translates to the sadness of things, right? It's tied to the sense of time passing. 
So it's something you feel acutely at, you know, say, dusk, when another day is gone. So there's some sense of sort of the melancholy of the scene, but also its richness and its loveliness. But what about as a scene? Yes? What, what happens for me is that it makes me see something. And what I see is darkness and this streak of white, which is the duck. And then I hear it while I see the streak of white. Mm. So it makes me mix my senses together. Yes. And what is the term for that mixing of senses? Synesthesia. Synesthesia. we got to get that up on our list because that is so important. Synesthesia, the mixing of senses, to say that a sound has color. That a, a color has taste. There are apparently, this is apparently a medical condition on top of everything else, and that there are people who are, I want to say, gifted with this, these crossed wires. I don't know if it's really a gift. It could cause problems, too, I, I guess, in life. And it's always hard to have, be a little different. You know, if you've seen Superman, you know that. But um, it always seems like it would be really cool to me. Do you want your hand up? Yeah. Yes, uh, well, um, it made me think of a, a storm and, a, and lightning. Yes. Yeah, it, it really does feel that way, that you're experiencing the big stuff of the world in this very tiny compass. Tiny little frame it can contain big, big stuff. That's, what, that's what's so fascinating about imagery. And it, of course, it does that work with incredible efficiency, right? Because we're talking about just a few words. And it uses all these tools. Um, synesthesia also, of course, is irrational. And that is part of the power. It defies our reasonable expectations. We don't think of a duck call as having color. Right? We're stepping outside the bounds of ordinary intellection and opening ourselves to a richer kind of sensory experience. Yes? Just on a little more literal, I found it interesting that the duck sound completely changes when I'm imagining it because the first line makes me think of being in a ship in the middle of the ocean and sea darkening with despair. Wild ducks call near land. Yeah. Yeah, and um, um, absolutely true. I've always, you know, it's interesting, and it shows how much is left to the imagination, but I've always imagined him standing on the beach. Um, but you could place him on a boat, it's open to that. Um, Haiku is this interesting balance between control and freedom. How much you can get in, how much you can safely leave out, that is a line we're always playing with in fiction. Often we err on one side or the other. Um, it's a constant adjustment. Now, I want, yes? This is kind of a basic question, but in reading Haiku, is it a goal to try to understand the poet meant? Or is another goal equally legitimate to imagine what you think it could have been? And you know, I've got the best answer ever, which is both. <laughs> you want to understand um, what the poet meant. And you know, clearly, in each case, we've gotten what the poet meant. But there's a wonderful openness which allows for one's own participation. You can then ask, what does it mean to me? Where can I take this next? You know, um, you could write your own haiku in sort of in response. That kind of participatory involvement I think is really important for fiction too, more so than we ever acknowledge. That the reading experience is very much a kind of dance between um, reader and writer. And 
the writer is leading, but um, the um, the reader is an equal participant. I know that is corny, using the dance, um, but it, it's very true. What I want to do now is briefly, because we're running uh, out of time, and I want to give you a chance to actually write some. I just want to quickly turn, flip the page, and show you how this works in prose. Uh, a wonderful writer, uh, Herta Mueller, is a uh, from. Uh, she lives in Germany. She's originally Romanian. Um, she was sort of forced into exile when that government still, uh, when that country still had a, sort of a ruthless dictatorship. She's from a German-speaking minority in Romania, so she's always spoken and written in German. Uh, she is a Nobel Prize winner. Uh, I mention that not because that's oh so great, but because it means that. Um, you know, Nobel, winning the Nobel Prize, often it's like becoming vice president. You're almost invisible. You know, you're lost. But she's really great, and you should, you should really read her. So let, let me just read the shorter one first. And maybe I'll leave the longer one for you to do on your own afterwards so that we can get to writing some haiku. But you'll see her use of physical detail how evocative it is. This is somebody who's been called in for questioning by the secret police. And of course they have, Romania is this sort of, um, uh, it's got this, it's, it, it, Romanian is a romance language and it's, it's got all these European traditions. He kisses, even though he is a basically a Gestapo type um, police guy, he kisses her hand when she comes in uh, for the interview. My nails hurt, but he's never squeezed them so hard my fingers turn blue. Eventually they'll thaw out, uh, the way they do when it's freezing cold, that is a typo, and you come into the warm. The worst thing is this feeling that my brain is slipping down into my face. It's humiliating, there's no other word for it, when your whole body feels like it's barefoot. Isn't that great writing? We could unpack this for the rest of the day. Right, but let's quickly run through. And you, you guys, if you have something to add, um, jump in. My nails hurt because though he's do he's 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 going through the motions of this gracious, gracious sort of you know I'll kiss your hand thing. He's squeezing her hand to make it hurt. Right, it's a threatening gesture. Um, eventually, they'll thaw out the way they do when it's freezing cold and you come into the warm. Right? So she's experiencing a kind of emotional cold, and that's what, where the analogy to the cold comes through. And we all know instantly, you can recognize that feeling because we all know it from life when you've been outside without gloves and your fingers are frozen, and that burning in the fingertips. The worst thing is this feeling that my brain is slipping down into my face. As soon as I read that, I knew what she was talking about, right? Think about her situation. Her situation is she's been called in by the secret police. They, they want to know something. Uh, it's a beautiful book. It's called The Appointment, by the way. So it's all about this. She's called, being called in. And then uh, as she rides the tram into her appointment, her mind just sort of spins out, and you get her life story. But. Um, she knows she wants to be cagey. She doesn't want to tell them. She doesn't even know what they want to know. She's an ordinary person, but she feels like she has some secret or else why would they call her in? Um, but she also feels like everything in her mind is totally visible because she's frightened, right? Instead of saying it the way I just said it, unpacking it, it's like explaining a joke. It's boring. If I said that to you, you'd like be, duh, what else is new? Obviously, right? If I, you know, anybody who's called in for questioning feels that way. The way she writes it, it's physical. My brain sliding into my face, slipping down into my face. 
right? Almost like sort of opening, peeling off of the, the skin of a mango and you can see the pulp inside. It's physical and therefore it's emotional. That is the key difference. It's humiliating. There is no other word for it when your whole body feels like it's barefoot. Again. Right? What she's really talking about is a kind of deep vulnerability, right? They can put her in a cell, torture her. Nobody will ever know what happened to her or, or where she went, right? Happened all the time in Romania during this period. Um, is happening now in other countries. Um, but to say that is not interesting. That's like reading an article in Time Magazine. You're like, so what? I read Time Magazine this week. But to say, my whole body feels barefoot. And you know that feeling of like when you step out of the house without your shoes and suddenly you've stepped on something and you're like, oh, I was such an idiot. Why did I do that? Now I've got you know, this big shank of something in my foot. Incredible physical vulnerability. All right, you get how this works. Now let's write some on our own. We have 15 minutes remaining. Yes? Um, in some of your examples in the high you earlier mentioned the form of being 575. Uh, and then, at least in the first movie, I didn't see any that followed that, uh, that kind of syllable. So I'm curious if in English, if, if that rule is kind of more able. Right. That, fantastic question. You've preempted exactly what I was going to say. Um, these are from uh, the Echo Press, Essential Haiku, Robert Haas, wonderful poet, great translations. I love this book. Uh, go take a look at it. It's a, a great introduction to haiku in English. 575 makes absolutely zero sense in English. It's not natural to the way English works. It's a natural rhythm in, in Japanese. It's not natural. None of these translations stick to that kind of syllable count. And in the ones you write, I would say, forget about that. Don't count syllables. Syllabic poetry in English is done, but it's totally weird. People who do it, do it because it's a weird kind of discipline, right? But we don't need that discipline because we're really interested in the imagery. This is what I want you to do. Think about, because haiku is short, think about it as one breath. Uh, where I live, we're on the coast, people fish on the beach, and I'm always fascinated because they got these long fishing, um, fishing poles. And what they do is sort of use them like whips, and they just sort of like shoot a line out there, and then the line sinks down. So think about it as sort of like just casting a line, one breath, what you can say in one breath, and then just keep it an image, an image. Right? Now, traditionally, there are certain, now there are all sorts of uh, rules about how a haiku is framed in Japanese. They, they have methods, for example, tying it to the season. Right? Often um, a group would sort of get a first line and then sort of riff off that line. Um, I'm going to give you one to make it easier. I'm going to give you an opening, and then you write an image around that opening. I love this, this one by Basho, which is about, oh my god, it's about, it's like the ultimate statement on the problem of, of consciousness. The cuckoos, uh, the cuckoos cry. Even in, in Kyoto, I long for Kyoto. Right? So when he hears the, the, the cuckoo, which is a different kind of bird in, in, in Japanese, when he hears that cry, he thinks of the ancient capital of Kyoto, and he longs for it with all his heart, even though he's right there. And you think, oh, because, you know, um, the Kyoto of old is not a physical place, it is a 
mental place or because we're always out of sync with the moment, right? The now is always gone and the past is always rich and we're always reaching back into the past. We're always displaced. We can talk about it all day. It's not as good as the haiku. But this is the line I'm going to give you. Okay, ready? We've only got 10 minutes, so we've got to work fast. Even in Iowa City. <laughs> now write me a great image from out there. Takes a couple of minutes. But this is really a case of first thought, best thought. Get a picture in your mind, write it down. Even in Iowa City. Okay, you guys keep writing, but I came up with one, so I'm gonna edit. I'm not telling you because it's particularly good, I'm telling you because it's particularly bad. <laughs> Which is the ultimate license, right? It's like, oh, mine can't be as bad as that. <laughs> so, even in Iowa City, the ants carry away a dead beetle. Because I was, this is actually before I left, uh, Wilmington, I remember looking out on my doorstep and there's sort of a line of ants carrying away this carcass, this beetle carcass. And I'm always fascinated by that because it looks like they're taking them to a funeral, you know. Um, it's, like, it's like watching an episode of Treme, you know how they're always like the second line. Um, it looks like they're carrying them away in some sort of grand funeral procession even though I know he's going to be chopped up and eaten. Even in Iowa City, the ants carry away a dead beetle. Who's going to go? Who's got one? Yeah. Even in Iowa City, the sun rises and sets on traffic cones. On traffic codes? Cones. Traffic cones, yes. No. Dodge streets all. I, I get it. I get it. <clears throat> yeah. Even in Iowa City, pelicans glide over the library. Even in Iowa City, pelicans? Is that true? Yes. Yeah. Pelicans glide. Glide over the library. <laughs> and yet we're so inland. Where are they, are they, where are they coming from? The river? They're white pelicans, so they're... Fascinating. I'm totally fascinated. You know what? That would even... See what a great opening line for something that would be. Even in Iowa City, right? Pelicans glide over the library, right? The key word there, the beautiful word is even, right? Because it implies a comparison. Your character is now from somewhere else, temporarily in Iowa City, making a mental comparison to that somewhere else. Like, oh, in Paris? I never see pelicans. Uh, so it's like, well, if, what is he doing in Paris? What is he doing in Iowa City? Right? Um, and it already has a kind of elegiac sweetness, right? As if something's been lost. I love it. Who's 
and I will sit in the hot weights, the mouse eats grass. Great, great. Uh, in the pink. Okay, this is based on an experience last night. Okay. Even in Iowa City, jazz flows freely next to a river of vomit. No, actually, that is totally within. Oh, even in Iowa City, jazz flows freely along a river of vomit. Next to a, 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 a river of vomit. I guess somebody over-imbibed. Huh? Um, that is totally within the Haikai tradition because the Haikai tradition was irreverent. It took the aristocratic tradition of the Waka and turned it around. So it was willing to talk about all sorts of bodily functions um, and, and make poetry more physical and more earthy. And you can see on our list, I've got a couple involving, you know, uh, fallen petals of red plum, they seem to be burning on the clods of horse shit. Right? That is totally high kai. So vomit is not off limits at all. White shirt back there. Even in Iowa City, corn grows in moonlight. Ah, lovely, lovely. Corn grows what? Corn grows in moonlight. Yeah, I like it because, you know, um, at night we think everything stops. But of course, it goes on. And you know, one of the things that so impresses me, like when I step up to a cornfield, that corn is so tall and it's so big. It's just amazing. It's, they're like trees. I feel small, smaller. In the middle. Even in Iowa City, the lights beat. Even in Iowa City, the lights beat. Interesting, interesting. So it sort of implies why I, I start to think about like a headachey character or something who's like starting a migraine or, or something. But sure, you know, again, it implies a comparison. It's that word even. And oh, I came here for migraine treatment, but even here the lights are just totally, you know, beating in my face. Who's next? Uh, Jennifer. Uh, even in Iowa City, the rabbit's founder, unsure whether to hop left or right. <laughs> even in Iowa City, the rabbit's founder, unsure whether to hop left or right. Beautiful. And there are a lot of rabbits here. <laughs> we don't get nearly as many rabbits that I notice. Um, we get possums. Do you have possums here? Yes. <laughs> Those are truly revolting creatures. <laughs> it looks like an old, an old bald man crawling along on all fours. They are truly horrible. We had like a garden, and then like the tomatoes were all half eaten. I thought, the, for some reason, irrationally, I thought the neighbor was doing it. <laughs> and then I saw this old man crawling through the grass at night, and I realized it was him. We have time for exactly one more green shirt there. Flowers and the people still melt in the sun. Oh, beautiful. Even in Iowa City, the flowers and the people still melt in the sun. Clearly, you've got it. My suggestion is this. Keep doing it, right? This isn't just for demonstration purposes. I honestly think that if you keep, that writing haiku is a great, fun, totally painless way of making your images better and also becoming more aware of what they do and the power they contain. And you can carry that into your fiction, your nonfiction, any kind of writing that you do. In general, I wouldn't limit this to haiku. I think fiction writers should read lots and lots of poetry, particularly if you're interested in the short story. The contemporary short story is, is image-based. It really is closer to the poem than it is to the novel. The novel is almost sort of a separate genealogical branch. Uh, if you like the short story, you are working very close to the poet. So is there 
Are there, I can probably take maybe two questions before we end. We all good? Great. Thank you so much for joining me.